Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Today with special guest Nathaniel Ellis. Hello, Nathaniel. Hi, how are you? Nathaniel is the owner, proprietor, and founder of the largest dollhouse store? Yeah, I mean, people are welcome to uh, contest that, but I don't think there are any dollhouse shops that are as large as mine in the world. Probably about 5,000 square feet, and I'm a dollhouse shop and museum, actually. Nice. So Nathaniel, how'd you get your start in dollhouses? So it's interesting. I remember as like a seven-year-old boy growing up in Orange, Massachusetts, I went to an antique shop that was downtown across from Carol's Market, and they had a dollhouse in there. And I remember it was fully finished with hardwood floors and wallpaper and wainscoting, chair rail, baseboard molding, crown molding, chandeliers, lighting, etc. It was all decked out like a real house. And I remember as a little boy opening the front door and sticking my arm down the hallway and just thinking this is the coolest thing I've ever seen but I didn't know why I was so fascinated with it until I grew up to be an interior designer and I realized that I've always loved old homes and I've always loved decorating so I was fascinated with dollhouses and I wanted one my whole life but I never got one until I was about 18 and I started collecting them myself with my own money. What about miniatures is specifically very magical to you? Because I know that they have this very broad and specific appeal, but I think it's hard to define. So what do you think? I think miniatures are so magical to me because it's an escape from reality and it's a way to live out different fantasies that maybe you can't achieve in real life, but you can in miniature. So for example, in real life, I wish I owned a big Victorian mansion full of antiques. I don't. So in the dollhouse world, I love Victorian houses that are big and and full of really beautiful furniture. So it's an outlet for me to live out that dream. And it's more affordable than the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) My follow up question was going to be the name of the shop is Flip This Dollhouse, Mm -hmm. which I really always like. Do you do a lot of restoration of like dilapidated, decrepit, otherwise stripped dollhouses? So it's interesting because that's how I got started 20 years ago was I bought two dollhouses, a colonial and a Victorian, and I fixed them up. I I completely flipped them. I spent hundreds of hours on each house. And I mean, I did paint, siding, shingles, shutters, flooring, lighting, wallpaper, stair runners, carpets, furniture, accessories, everything. And I was in love with it. But then I realized that I liked flipping dollhouses, but I really just liked rescuing them. So as my collection got bigger, I wasn't finishing them. I was rescuing them, you know, and and I, I considered myself as saving something that brings a lot of joy to people, especially when they're young or an adult. And then a lot of times dollhouses end up abandoned in people's attics or basements when their child grows out of it. Or, you know, when someone moves or downsizes, they have to store their dollhouse somewhere. So they end up abandoned, and that actually makes me sad. So I like to rescue them so that they can bring joy to someone new. So it's like a form of miniature architectural salvage? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's kind of um, like I consider my shop a rescue shelter for dollhouses instead of a puppy mill. So, yeah. (laughs) That's a really good way to put it. I like that. Right? So instead of introducing new dollhouses to the world, which there's nothing wrong with, I prefer to save the old ones that are already existing and just need a new home and need to be loved. So your, your collection and reselling focuses on older pieces? I don't discriminate on age of dollhouses. I have dollhouses in my shop dating back to the early 1920s and then I do have some that are brand new but I would say most of my dollhouses are probably from the 70s 80s 90s 
that's when it was a really big hobby. And then kind of late 90s, early 2000s, it started to kind of fade away because of electronics taking over and little kids wanted video games and computers and everything nowadays is virtual, you know, virtual reality, where when I was a kid, my favorite toys were the things you could actually touch and play with. It's imagination play. Whether you're your kid or an adult, it's imagination play. And I feel like nowadays, imagination play isn't as appreciated as it used to be because everything's virtual. It kind of takes a special kid to appreciate a dollhouse nowadays. And like I always say, you know, I thought that my shop was going to be full of little kids when I opened it, but no, it's full of big kids. It's mostly adults. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say to people who do believe that this is a hobby that adults do not necessarily belong in? That's a good question. It happens a lot where as an adult, you tell someone that you do dollhouses for a hobby and they look at you like, are you okay? You know, (laughs) have you resorted back to childhood? sad? Yeah. (laughs) And the truth is dollhouses are very therapeutic to people. So sometimes a lot of my customers do buy dollhouses because they've gone through something really horrible in their life and they need an escape. It's role play, it's nostalgia, it's imagination play. Actually, if I end up getting this reality show that could happen, I told the producers that one of my biggest missions would be to tell the world that you're not crazy if you're into dollhouses, you're not crazy if you have multiple dollhouses, because many of my customers do, and that the hobby is for all genders and all ages. There should be no gender-specific toys, in my opinion. And when I first started telling people that I collected dollhouses, I was afraid that I was going to be judged. I was afraid of the looks or the comments I was going to get. So I remember when I first came out as a miniaturist, I... I would tell people that I collected and built miniature houses. I didn't say dollhouses because unfortunately I think doll is the word that makes people think that they're feminine. Doll has the baggage, yeah. Yeah, which it's funny because when you think about a dollhouse, I mean, I don't think toys should be specific to any gender, but it's a handmade wooden box. It's actually kind of boyish if we're going to label it. It's a little butch, yeah. Right? (laughs) But everyone thinks it's for little girls because it's called a dollhouse. But really, I mean, a lot of men get into it. I think that's interesting you mention it because actually my first dollhouse was built by my mother who had a much higher interest in woodworking than my father. Yeah. So I've always, I I kind of grew up without that sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's important to me that we kind of dismantle it. Well, that's kind of the irony with me, though, is everyone that comes in my shop, I've got 150 buildings in here and they look around and they say, do you build these? And I'm like, no, I, I, I collect them, I clean them up, I stage them, and I sell them as is. But I don't actually like to build. I'm not really a painter and I'm not a builder. I'm a decorator, a stager, and a designer. So I like rescuing dollhouses and then making them look pretty and then finding them a new loving home. But I don't actually build them. So yeah, actually, um, this is betraying a little bit of foreknowledge that I had. Uh, you work with other people to sort of like create items and like art and miniatures that go into these pieces. It seems like it's collaborative. Yeah, it is. Uh, We do a lot of special orders for customers. I have too much inventory in my shop. There's literally (laughs) probably 10,000 items that it's very difficult to list it all online. So what I get into is custom orders or special orders where, you know, someone will contact me and they'll say, I'm doing a Victorian living room and it needs to be all red and blue. And I said, okay, you know, if um, if you want to give me a budget, I will put together a room for you. And no obligation. If you don't like it, I'll just set it up in the shop and, and be proud of it. I do that quite a bit. Uh, recently, there was a customer who came here all the way from Virginia. And while she was here, I designed two bedrooms and a man cave for her dollhouse. <laughs> it was really cool. 
And then when she got home, she asked me to do another room. It was it was a game room. And so I put together this living room set with two beautiful red Chesterfield sofas. It had a real painting, a beautiful coordinating rug and pillows. And I sent her pictures and I, I said, no obligation, but here's what I put together for you. I had a blast doing it. And she bought every single item. And that's just an example of one customer that has done that. But I've done that countless times. And I love it. That's really where I shine. That's where I come alive. I don't want to just build. I don't want to sell online like a lot, but I love doing special orders and custom orders and room designs for people. That's my skill set. And I have to remember sometimes that I'm not just selling a product here. I'm selling a skill set and it's my design skills. Absolutely. And I think those can go underappreciated. Absolutely. That's actually interesting that you mentioned it. I am curious. Um, you've got a beautiful, absolutely lovely spot here. What made you want to pursue having a physical shop over a digital shop, which is all the rage these days? That is such a good question because when I started in this business 11 years ago, actually June of 2011 was when I started, and I originally started selling online. I sold on eBay and Etsy, and I've sold on Facebook. When I first started, I actually started off selling at the Raynham Flea Market, and I had a little booth, like a (laughs) 10 by 10 booth, and and I loved it, but I realized quickly that uh, flea markets are not where collectors really come. It's more like yard sailors. You know, they'll offer you a quarter for something that's $100. And this is kind of more of a collector's hobby. So I realized online, you can find the collectors because you're exposed to the entire world. But I did sell online. I actually made a living for four years selling on eBay. And unfortunately, I, I started to realize that eBay takes so much of a percentage of your sales. Honestly, I, I think I figured out it was like 20 to 30% after listing fees, relisting fees, selling fees, PayPal fees, fees if you dare to question the fees. Um <laughs> So eventually, after four years, I pulled off of eBay because I realized even when I, if I had a huge month, I was giving them 30% of it. And the epiphany was, if I have that much overhead, thousands of dollars a month in overhead, I should just open a shop. And I knew it would be much more satisfying to me, like intrinsically and more validating to sell my items in person and work with people to help them make their dollhouse beautiful. Whereas selling online, it's, it's a totally different game. People, I hate to say it, but they're not always as friendly when they're behind a computer screen. Um, in my shop, I've had thousands of customers. I've never had a problem with a customer. Online, people can be a little bit, I don't know, I'm almost kind of bullies, I hate to say it. So I really prefer not to sell online. I prefer to sell in person because of that. But um, in terms of like intrinsic reward, it's more satisfying to me to work with someone in person and get to know them and figure out what they're working on than to just list something online and sell it and then package the box and ship it. That doesn't feed my soul, but having a shop does feed my soul. And now that I have this humongous shop, I will say my overhead is like ridiculous, but I would rather do this than sell online. And I actually find it easier because when you sell online, you know, if you're selling one item at at a time, it can be exhausting because if you sell 100 items one month, you're packaging 100 orders and shipping 100 orders and writing out a right? (laughs) But in the shop, if someone comes in, one customer might buy 100 items. And you wrap up the items, you write up the slip, and you say, thank you, have a nice day. But online, it's like 100 times the work. And then eBay or whatever site you're selling at takes 30%. 
So in your shop, I find it to be more rewarding, easier, and more profitable. And nowadays, how many shops are there really left? You know what I mean? That you can go to and see things and hold things. Everything's online now. And I'm from the generation that was like really excited that you can buy things online. But now I'm kind of like, I don't want to say I'm over it, but I would rather go to a shop, an antique shop, a thrift shop, a dollhouse shop, see things, hold them. I'll buy more because I can see it and hold it and I'll fill a basket. But online, I don't know. It's great that we have that capability nowadays, but I'm kind of, um, maybe I'm old school. I I prefer going to a shop. And when I was designing my shop in my head, I was thinking of hobby stores and toy stores from when I was a kid and how magical they were. Because, I mean, shopping is one of America's favorite pastimes. (laughs) But nowadays, so many businesses and stores have closed because of online. How are retailers supposed to compete with wholesalers online? So people come in sometime and they just say, we're so happy that there's a physical location that we can come to to shop because there really aren't any dollhouse shops left. I'm pretty much the guy in the Northeast. I'm not even just New England in the Northeast. I'm the biggest shop. There is something kind of reassuring as a customer to have like a physical space to go to and know, oh, this item actually exists. It is as described. I can hold it and see that it's real. And when I pay for it, I will take it home with me same day. That's that. That's exactly (laughs) the thing is like when you sell something online, say you sell a doll and one hair is out of place, you're going to hear about it from a lot of customers. I wouldn't care because that's just who I am. If I bought it, then I wanted it. But um, in the store, you get to inspect it. And I actually put on every receipt that all sales are final, just like an antique shop or a thrift shop. We have no return policy. All sales are final, no refunds or exchanges. And we encourage our customers to inspect every item because if there is a flaw, you bought it. (laughs) God, I remember that so well with people just like, no, make sure you look at it because it's not coming back. And honestly, honestly, I was inspired by the antiques world. My inspiration for this shop and the way I run it was watching how the antiques world and antique shops are run, knowing kind of some of the behind the scenes stuff, but also my design background and my sales and retail background, it all kind of came together to create this monster. (laughs) And it's funny because if you had asked me even five, 10 years ago, would I be running the largest Aho shop in the world? I would have said, are you crazy? I'm not going to make any money. That's too niche. It's not a mainstream hobby anymore. But here I am and I'm doing well and very exciting things are happening for me in the shop. And like I always say, I literally felt like I was crazy when I opened the shop. I was like, what are you doing, Nathaniel? And then I remember I set a goal for my first month, you know, a dollar amount that I needed to make or else what are you doing, Nathaniel? You are going to be committed. And then I ended up making the front page of like five newspapers when I opened. Someone did an article on me and it like blew up and went everywhere. And because of that front page exposure, about 100 people showed up to my grand opening. And it was it was a weekend in March three years ago. And um, there was actually a snowstorm. So (laughs) I was outside on the front steps sweeping snow off of the steps because I didn't have a shovel. And 100 people still showed up in the snow. And I, I credit the newspaper. Anyways, what I'm getting to is that I ended up making my monthly goal in the first day. It was so inspiring. That's incredible. Yeah, it really was. I was thinking the beauty of the physical store is I know from collecting dolls that scale is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. So you have no guarantee that something's going to fit in like the little world you've got because there's no standardized scale for dolls, just railroads, I think. Yeah. And Warhammer. Well, for doll, 
for dolls, I think there there is a scale, but dolls aren't really my forte. But in the dollhouse world, scale is very important. The mainstream scale, which I sell mostly, is 112 scale. So 99.9% of my items are 112 scale. The only other scales that I also do sell a little bit of is 16 scale, which is actually Barbie scale. Very difficult to find furniture in Barbie scale because I think with Barbies, it's more about the fashion, the hair, the accessories. It's not really about the house so much. Um, but with this hobby, it's more about the house and the furniture and less about the dolls. It really is kind of like interior design and miniature to most people, especially adult collectors. To little kids, it, it's probably about the dolls and role playing in the house. But to adults, it's about creating a room that looks realistic and designing it and just making it beautiful and picking out everything that you like. And I always tell people when you pick out stuff for your dollhouse, make it count. Pick out things you really like that maybe are sentimental to you. And you don't ever have to be done with a dollhouse. You can keep choosing items for it for the rest of your life. It's tough because people come in and they're, sometimes they're looking for half scale or Barbie scale. Half scale is very hard to find. It's very obscure. It's smaller. It's half the size of 112 scale. So a lot of people get into it if they're limited for space. Like if you live in a small apartment, you might not have room for a gigantic 112 scale dollhouse, but you might have room for a couple half scale dollhouses. So I feel bad because sometimes people come in and, and that's all they're looking for. And I have a, a small selection of it, but it's hard to find. It's obscure. And when you do find it, a lot of times it's handmade and it's expensive. So 112th is the mainstream scale. That's the scale that everything is made in. So my thought is if I'm going to run a niche business, I don't want to sell too much of the niche scales within a niche business because then you're so specific, you're not going to do well, really. I'd like to have something for everyone, not just scale, but price ranges and quality. I, I like to make sure I have something for every person. But scale, some people are really sticklers about and other people aren't. I am pretty stickler about it, but not insane about it. <laughs> I don't I don't overthink it, but some people do, I think. But it depends. Like if you're building a dollhouse to play with, who cares about scale? But if you're building a dollhouse and you want it to look real, scale is everything. Because that's such a different world from the dolls I collect, which are super unregulated in terms of scale. Mm -hmm. So like knowing that, that's really neat. Now you mentioned big things happening for your shop. Do you perhaps speak of Fatal Flaw now on ABC? <laughs> yeah, there have been a lot of big things that have been happening that I never expected when I opened this shop. But the most recent thing was um, in the beginning of April, a uh, production company came in from ABC. And they were looking to purchase some dollhouses for a show on ABC called The Fatal Flaw. And the show is going to be about real-life murders. And they're going to recreate the murder scenes in miniature using dollhouses. So they said that their shtick was not going to be CG like everyone else does, but dollhouses. Which I think is so refreshing because back in the day, a lot of movies used miniatures in the movies before CG was a thing. Star Wars, Godzilla, Beetlejuice, they all used miniatures, dollhouses, train sets, stuff like that. But a lot of times they get destroyed in those movies, which makes me cringe. But at the same time, it's great that they were represented in these movies back then. So anyways, when they came in, I was so excited for the opportunity. And it was interesting because the production designer actually sent his mother in. The production company was from New York and his mother was from Connecticut. And he sent her in here to kind of scope me out and kind of see if I was going to be a good resource for the show. 
So she came in and introduced herself and I gave her a grand tour and I probably spent an hour with her and she loved the shop and loved my selection and told me that she was going to recommend me as a resource to the show and to her son. And sure enough, about a week later, I got an email from the son asking me what I could do for them. And I told them, you know, I don't pretend to have skills I don't have. So I'm not a builder and I'm not a painter, but I'm a decorator, stager and a designer. So I said, if you'd like, I can take the dollhouses in my shop that look like the murder houses and I can recreate the crime scenes as accurately as possible. I said, I have an incredible selection to pick from of furniture and accessories. You won't find a selection like this anywhere else in the world. I think I could really do those scenes justice. So sure enough, he actually sent me the crime scene photos and um, anything gory was blurred out. But he sent me the crime scene photos and I spent a solid week, probably 100 hours, working on staging these three dollhouses to look like the real houses in the crime scenes. And I had no expectations of what was going to happen. There was no obligation. But he gave me about a week to do it, which was crunch time. It, yes, it, yeah, it, it, it was scary <laughs> because here's this like biggest opportunity I've ever had. And I've got a week. So I literally just focused on that for a week. They gave me their budget and it was a very healthy budget. So I knew that I could really put some time into this. And a lot of furniture and accessories went into the houses. He told me he was coming on a Wednesday to see what I came up with from New York. He was driving five hours and he was renting a van, a big van. I stayed at the shop until midnight on a Tuesday working on these houses to get them ready for a presentation on Wednesday. And now presentations are kind of my thing because as an interior designer, I've done thousands of presentations of room designs and then the goal is hopefully they hire you or they buy the furniture that you're selling or, or whatever. So he comes in on Wednesday and I am so nervous and excited and proud too because I really did put my heart into it. For example, if there was a nightstand in the crime scene photos that had 12 items on it, I would look around the shop for those 12 items. And if we didn't have one of those items, we would create it. So one item that we created that we're particularly proud of was a contact lens case, which if you watch the first episode, it plays a very important part in the crime. Now, so I just want everyone listening to real quick, picture a contact lens case and then picture it at one twelfth of its size. It, it was so tiny. tiny. It was handmade out of like plastic and a bead or something, but it was so tiny that if you sneezed, you would probably lose it. Um, <laughs> but what happened is um, they came in and I did a presentation of all three houses and there was a 10 room ranch which was huge it was sprawling and it was actually a model of a real home a sprawling ranch from the 70s it was really cool there was a six room ranch which was very difficult to decorate actually and then there was a nine room colonial that opened in the front it was blue i mean i've got 150 buildings in here but it just so happened that these three dollhouses looked like the murder houses and my job was to stage the inside. Their job was to make the outside look even more accurate. So they, they have a whole team working on set design and production design. I was just, you know, the beginning of the process. So anyways, I did the presentation and then I said to them, what do you think? What, what would you like to do? And they said, well, we're going to go to lunch and think about it and talk about it and we'll be back. And I said, okay, great. So they came back from lunch and I asked the same question. I said, oh, okay, what would you like to do? 
and they said, well, have you have you thought of a price for everything? And I said, no, but I can add it up. It would just take me a little bit to, to add it up. And he says, okay, go for it. And so, <laughs> so it, it took me four hours to ring up the slip because it was 27 pages long. And it took me, I think, an hour or two to add it and then re-add it and then re-add it to make sure I hadn't made any mistakes. It was like one of the most exciting days of my professional life. They purchased everything. And um, when they were leaving and picking up the dollhouses with their van, they said, see you next time. And, and I said, really? Really? Because that would be awesome. Yes, please. It, right? And they said, well, the first season of the show is going to be four episodes. It's a pilot. And if the show does well, then it would be renewed for a second season. And they would need an entire season of dollhouses. And I am their resource for the show. They're not going to find a bigger resource in the world. But also, I, I really bent over backwards to help them. And that was the exciting thing is he said, you saved us so much time and money by staging these houses for us. So I was so excited that they had a healthy budget for the project, but they were excited because I I actually probably saved them a lot of money. But the best part of the story that I can't leave out was um, when they were leaving, they said, by the way, the reason we chose you in your shop was not just because you're the largest Aho shop in the world. It was because you were friendly helpful and you bent over backwards for us to do whatever you could do for the show and they said we actually did scout some other shops and we chose you because of that and that just makes me so happy kind of like you you'd been saying earlier about how important the personal and social element is especially mm-hmm. when your decision to open up like a meat space shop <laughs> yeah um yeah the ability to connect with people and to know that they can rely on you in a professional context or that you are normal and not going to judge them in a right? social context. it's funny because some days i feel like my shop is like a social club because everyone just loves coming Coming in and hanging out. It's a very fun, friendly, eclectic environment, just very happy and artistic and creative. And I pride myself on being very friendly and customer service oriented. And um, every customer that comes in, I feel like they're in my playroom. And I want to show them my toys and I want to make sure they have a good time and enjoy their stay. Most of my customers come from hours away and I advertise all over like the Northeast because I have customers that have driven 11 hours before to get here. So when they come, I really want to make sure that they have a good time, they enjoy themselves and they feel like it was worth the trip. So, you know, I make sure to offer them coffee or I tell them where to go for lunch or dinner. And and I just want to make it a good experience because I know how I would feel. And if I went to a dollhouse shop and I would be so excited because that's my favorite thing to do. And and if if they weren't friendly or if they didn't really talk to me, it would be off-putting to me. Now, some customers like to be left alone. I'm aware of that. (laughs) But, But generally, I like to meet every customer, find out where they're from, what they're working on, and how can we help them. I always say, are, are you working on a dollhouse right now? Oh, what what's the style of the house? Are you looking for furniture, accessories, wallpaper, flooring, lighting, curtains, rugs? We have it all. <laughs> and, and it's funny because I know I call my business Flip This Dollhouse because it's about saving dollhouses. And I do have a building supplies department and, and I have thousands of pieces of furniture and thousands of accessories. But really, for me, when I was collecting and, and my private collection started to get really large with 30 dollhouses, or so. My favorite part about the hobby was the decorating. So I really got into the the furniture, the rugs, the curtains, the pillows, the decor, the accessories. For me, it wasn't so much about the building. It was about the decorating. 
So have any other exciting things been going on for your shop? You mentioned that you've been looking at a lot of success and fun things moving forward. So what else? What else you got going on? Yeah. You know what? I spend a fortune on advertising on Facebook. It's ridiculous, but it works. Every almost maybe 99% of my customers come from my Facebook advertising. So it's very effective for me. Not all businesses benefit from Facebook advertising, but mine does. Well, sometimes I feel guilty about how much money I spend on advertising, but then I think that might be what has gotten the attention of production companies and networks and television shows. And and that's been incredibly exciting for me and my shop. So um, in the past, I have rented out dollhouses that were in a music video that was shot in Boston. I remember they were standing behind the dollhouses in the video, and I think they were pretending that they were like giants. And actually, when they rented the dollhouses for me, I don't actually rent out dollhouses anymore but I did at this time. This was years ago. It was the first time I ever did something like that. They actually fixed them up and painted them and and like <laughs> added value to them and then gave them back when they were done because they were just renting them. But I think when I rented them out, what I did and what I still do is I charge the price of the house because if anything happens to the house, they're very difficult to insure. You might not be able to find someone who can fix it. The part could be out of production, irreplaceable. And so when someone comes in and they want to rent a dollhouse, I say, actually, what I do is I sell them and then at the selling price. And then when you're done with it, you can do whatever you want with it. You could donate it. You could keep it. You could give it to the producer's kids. You could give it back to the shop if you want. You're welcome to, but you don't have to. So that's what I do. But so these dollhouses came back and they were in better shape than when they left. Now, dollhouses are large, heavy sometimes, and delicate. So every time you move them, something gets broken. It's just inevitable. It comes with the job. When I rent them out, I don't want them to get destroyed, but I don't care that much as long as they paid for it. But anyway, so that was the first really exciting thing that happened. And then the next thing was um, there was a play in Boston called Becoming Dr. Ruth. And it was about the famous sex therapist, Dr. Ruth. And apparently one of her hobbies, or biggest hobbies, is dollhouses. Oh, I didn't know that. So in this play, it was a one-woman play, just her on stage for the whole time. They needed dollhouses for, like, the backdrop. And I'm not sure what role they played if she played with them, but they were in on stage. So they actually um, purchased two dollhouses from me and then... And donated them after they were done with them. But they also bought furniture and accessories and wallpaper and a bunch of stuff. And it was just so exciting. And it was such a fun experience. And I'm glad that that happened before some of these bigger things happened, like HBO and ABC, because it was a good sample at like getting my feet wet with this type of stuff. And then after that happened, HBO was filming a new series in the Newport mansions called The Gilded Age. And this was from Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey. And I got a call one day from the set designer and she said, we need a dollhouse that looks like it's from the Gilded Age, 1880 to 1900, preferably a large Victorian mansion. And she said, I heard you are the largest dollhouse shop in the world. Do you have dollhouses like that? And I said, actually, yes, I probably have a couple dozen that would fit that era. So I said, come on in. I said, I'll show you every one that I think you should consider. So she came in on a Tuesday on a day I was closed and I gave her her own private tour and she ended up buying a large Victorian mansion from the shop that sits in the Elms Mansion in Newport and it's one of the little girls young girls dollhouses in the show The Gilded Age and you can see it on episode 6 of The Gilded Age on HBO and it's pretty exciting that the scene is uh, like a minute and a half long but when that happened I was 36 years old and I said this is it I've peaked. It's all downhill from here. No, but uh, I was like, 
I was so excited because when the set designer called, she was actually being a little vague at first. And then I asked questions to find out what this was. Well, when I realized it was Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey, I was so excited because Downton Abbey was my favorite show ever. Like the houses, the costume design, the set design, it's all beautiful and incredible. And and I imagine a show like that has a very large budget for set design and costume design because it's all about it, all about that. So out of any show in the world that could have called me to buy a dollhouse for their set design, the fact that it was that show was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. So that happened, and and I got a lot of press from that. I ended up on the front page of some newspapers. I was on a radio show in Boston, and I was on Channel 10 News, and just got a lot of press from it. It was really great hype for the shop. And apparently that press got the attention of two different production companies. And um, so two different production companies reached out to me and expressed interest in turning my shop into a reality show. And the second company interviewed me on camera for two and a half hours. And at the end of the interview, they said that they would like to represent me. So I am currently working with a production company on my own reality show. It's not official yet, and I can't really say anything about the company or or any details yet. But I can say that the stage that we're at right now is the production company I'm working with has teamed up with a second production company so that when they pitch the show idea to all of the networks... It has more strength. So I believe in the idea. The production company believes in the idea as well as the second company. But we've got to get a network to buy into the idea. And what it would be, we've discussed this at length, it would be an unscripted reality show, something similar to Pawn Stars, American Pickers, Storage Wars, something like that. And it would focus on me and my shop and my relationships with customers, vendors, dealers, sellers. Um, It would follow me around New England as I pick up dollhouses and where are they from, who made them, why are they special, and then what do we do to get them ready to sell, and then who buys them, you know, uh, what happens from there. So I think it would be a very interesting show. There's never been anything quite like that on TV. I think I could make it entertaining. And I don't think there would be any shortage of dialogue because I, <laughs> I can talk. But when the production company called, my first two questions, and, and I, don't, I don't want to disrespect any other types of shows out there, but my first question was, is this a competition show? And they said, nope, no, nope, we're not doing a competition show. And I said, good, because I, I wouldn't be interested in that. I wouldn't like the pressure of it. And I don't think that this hobby should be a competitive hobby. I think this is a hobby where we should appreciate all different skill sets and styles and techniques and whatever. Much like your shop, it's very much a collaborative venture. Yeah, and, and there's no judgment here. On, on skill level ever. I hate when there is. I think that is just the most awful thing. But then my other question was, I said, do you want this to be like a dramatic reality show where like I'm flipping tables and stuff? <laughs> And of course, I thought of (laughs) which would be really cute, actually. And I thought of that because I'm like, that isn't me, really. And I don't want to be represented in that light as a like dramatic place where everyone's fighting or something. That's I know it's entertainment, but that's not who I am. And they said, no, actually, we would want the show to appeal to all ages like the hobby does. So we would want it to be kind of light and fluffy. We would want to make it friendly for all all ages and genders and all different types of people. So that that was exciting to me because I that's the type of show I would want to create and that's who I am. 
So I was actually really excited and impressed with this production company, really passionate. And I'm very passionate about what I do. So it got me excited. We'll see what happens. It, it might not happen. But the, the hype and the excitement from it is so inspiring that even if it doesn't happen, that's okay. You never know. Something could happen down the road. I never expected any of these things to happen. <laughs> I cannot express enough how much I want that show. Mm-hmm. I want to watch it so bad. <laughs> well, you know what was funny is when they um, when they interviewed me, they told me, they said, we were actually working on a show about interior design and miniature, and we were thinking about featuring you. But then once we interviewed you and we met you and your shop and learned about what you're all about, we realized that you and your shop are enough for a show. So we don't need to feature you. You would be the show, you and your shop. They said, we think you've got the whole package. We think you could really make this successful. And and it's funny because I've been thinking about it a lot. And part of me feels very vulnerable about the idea of being exposed to the world. And, you know, when you put yourself out there in this world, you can't take it back. But then part of me feels like, no, I'm made for this. I can do this. It sounds like you know your own limits. Right. Which I think puts you in such a better headspace to move forward with it than a lot of other people. Right. I'm kind of 50-50. I mean, maybe I'm leaning more towards the confident side. Half of me feels very vulnerable and a little nervous about it because show business kind of scares me a little bit. But then the other half of me is like, no, everything I've done in my life has kind of prepared me for this. And if this happens, I feel like I can do it. I think I would be good at it, and I think I could make it entertaining. We're excited to see it when it does happen. Me too. It's going to happen. I need this show in my life. <laughs> right? I do believe in speaking things into existence. Bring the right energy. You you, uh, you can make things move. I was um, out to dinner last night with friends for my birthday, and I was talking about my best friend. When I met him, I saw him at a concert, and I said, I didn't know him, and I he was like front row, and I was like seventh row. And I looked at him, and I said, I wish I was his friend. There's something about him. He seems magical. I I wish I was his friend. And then a year later, I bumped into him and we became best friends. And I thought, oh my goodness, I spoke this into existence. You can't force a friendship. It just happened. So I do believe in that. So what is your advice to people who are on the fence about making some sort of move toward a dream? Because it's it's really spectacular, like looking around here, hearing your story, that the risks you took really did pay off, gained so much from them. So what would you say to other people who are not sure if that's worth doing two things that i actually do say to people is never give up everyone is going to tell you you're crazy everyone's going to be a naysayer honestly there were times where i was my biggest naysayer i didn't really admit this dream to people because i knew everyone would try to talk me out of it or squash it or say i was crazy or or whatever so i didn't really tell people that i had this dream i kind of kept it secret and then when i opened it even myself I put my heart and soul into it, but even I was like, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. This is kind of a crazy idea. It's a very niche hobby. It's not a mainstream hobby, but it worked out and, and so far so good. But the other thing that I tell people is when you're going against the grain in life and maybe you're starting a business or you're just pursuing a, an unusual career path or, or whatever, don't expect to be a success overnight and don't get discouraged because it can take 10, 20 years I've been doing this as a hobby for 20 years and as a business for 11 years. And it really wasn't until three years ago that I was at a point where I was like, okay, this is now my main gig. 
I don't take a lot of design jobs for real houses anymore because this takes up a lot of my time and this is my main gig now. But I have another business. I have an interior design business that I opened a couple years ago and I did really well my first year, but it wasn't an overnight success. It would take me probably 10, 20 years to get my design business to the point where of where my dollhouse business is. And that's the thing I think people don't realize. And I think that's why so many new businesses fail is people give up and you can't ever give up. And what made me successful too was I had a career in interior design and, and sales and I also have an HR degree. And this was a side business that I kept growing on the side. So it was kind of like my backup plan, but it was also the thing I really wished I was doing. So I would have my career and, and have my you know job and I enjoyed that. But this was a hobby that I was slowly turning into a business on the side, really not even so much for the money. It was so that I could keep rescuing dollhouses because that's my favorite thing to do. And when you have a job and it's your favorite thing to do, it really never feels like work. I feel like I'm playing when I'm here. And some days when there's no customers, we are playing. But <laughs> but um, but then other days there's customers and, and we're selling dollhouses and furniture, but it, it feels like play. It's really beautiful. It's That's magical. Wonderful. I think that even what you're doing for the city that we're in is, is remarkable. Like just bringing people in and showing people the nicer side of a questionable time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is fun to show off the parts of New Bedford that we love. Yeah, maybe I'm biased because it's my shop, but I think this should be kind of like a destination. This, there's no other shop quite like mine, so I think it should be kind of like a tourist destination. And it's funny because in the summer, a lot of people come to my shop from all over the country and all over the world. And I mean, I've had people recently from Dublin, Ireland, from Canada, from Missouri, Kentucky, Indiana, Chicago, all over. And when they come, I I say, oh, wow, did, did you make a trip specifically here for my shop? And sometimes they have, but sometimes they're on a trip, they're on a vacation, and they're making a point to stop at my shop because they've heard of it. And that is so exciting and rewarding to me because, I mean, that's something I would do when I travel. I always check to see if there are dollhouse shops or antique shops in the area that I have to check out. And I've been doing that for 20 years. So it's just so exciting to me that people come from all over the world. And I didn't really know if that was going to happen, but it is happening. So if you wanted someone to know one more thing about dollhouses and the dollhouse collecting hobby after listening to this podcast, what would that be? I think one misconception about this hobby is that a lot of items are handmade or vintage or out of production. And and some people think that, you know, it's too expensive of a hobby. And certain items are more of an investment, especially if they're handmade handmade or one of a kind or you know someone put hundreds of hours into it then it should be more of an investment but there are all different levels in this hobby and different price ranges and quality levels from play quality all the way up to museum quality so in my shop I realized right away that in order to be successful I needed to sell play quality low quality medium quality high quality and museum quality items you really can't just sell one type of item and expect to be successful You need to have something for everyone. So just like as an interior designer, some people think that, oh, I can't afford an interior designer. That's only for wealthy people. No, you can afford it. Anyone can afford an interior designer. You just set the budget. If you tell them, I only have $500 to spend, then that's all you have to spend. And the designer will work within that budget. So same thing in the dollhouse world. 
I've sold dollhouses that were maybe $50 and they spent maybe $50 on furniture, so $100 total, all the way up to $15,000. And I have dollhouses in my shop that are even more than that. But my typical dollhouses and my typical customer, it's the houses are a couple hundred dollars usually, maybe one to 300. And then furniture, you can spend a hundred bucks, you can spend a couple hundred, or you can spend thousands. So we, we have customers that will spend five, $6,000 on furniture for a house, and maybe they only paid 500 for the house. So I know we were talking about how dollhouses are also for adults, but do you have anyone come in looking for dollhouses for children to play with? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, most of our customers are adults, but there are quite a few people who still buy dollhouses for children of all different ages. Um, and they always ask me, what age do you recommend for this hobby? I say, obviously, choking hazard, it should be considered, but it really depends on the child. Because if you have a three-year-old child who is very gentle and respectful, they might be okay for the hobby. And then on the other end of that, if you have a 14-year-old child who is a little destructive tyrant like I was, that might not be a good hobby for them. Because when I was little, I would have destroyed a dollhouse probably. And now it's kind of ironic that I own this shop and I have all these breakable items in here because I just wasn't the type of kid that would have taken care of it. But um, I do sell actually a lot of dollhouses to little boys, which is very validating to me because growing up, I really wanted a dollhouse. We were a little too poor for the hobby, but my parents probably could have found one secondhand that was affordable. But what it really was, was growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was too ashamed as a boy to ask for a dollhouse because I knew I would be judged. I knew I would be teased by friends and family probably, which is horrible. But I remember as a little boy thinking, if I ask for a dollhouse for Christmas or for my birthday, how am I going to hide it so I don't get made fun of? And that's horrible. But it's a much different world nowadays. And I'll tell you, when customers come in, whether it's parents or grandparents or whatever, and they're buying a dollhouse for a little boy, I can tell sometimes that they're a little uncomfortable. People will still ask me, like, do you have anything for boys? And I say, oh, everything's for boys and girls. There's, there's nothing gender specific in my shop. But sometimes they'll say, do you have any fire departments, firehouses or log cabins? And I say, yes, but I, I also have houses and shops and, you know, all different types of things. And, and they're great for boys or girls, actually. But anyways, what I do is when a grandparent or parent comes in and they seem to be uncomfortable, but they're doing it, they're buying a dollhouse for a little boy, I try to comfort them or reassure them that it's okay. And what I usually say is, um, you know, you never know. He could grow up to be an architect, an interior designer, an engineer a real estate agent hey he could grow up to own a dollhouse shop so there's nothing wrong with your little boy if he's into dollhouses and if you allow him to have that dollhouse you're allowing him to develop skills that could turn into something really exciting as he gets older um, but if you don't allow them to have that dollhouse you could be stifling them and you could cause negative things to happen for that child in their development and that's how I feel. It's a wonderful message. I think it's really important that, yeah, supporting any child's interest, no matter how outre you might think it is, is super important to their development psychologically, socially, mm -hmm. and like you said, all of these skills that they could be picking up and get more interested in as they get older. And it might be a little bit of a controversial topic if I had a reality show, but I did tell the producers that would be one of my missions is to tell the world that there's nothing wrong with you if you're into this hobby, no matter what age or gender or whatever. It's for everyone. Why, why wouldn't it if you wanted people to be able to find you, where could they look online? Oh gosh, there are so many places where you can find us online. The best place to go is our Facebook page. So it's facebook.com slash flip this dollhouse. But we're also on Instagram and TikTok. It's at 
Flip This Dollhouse MA, as in Massachusetts. And we also have a website, www.flipthisdollhouse.com. And I will tell you, if you need to get in touch with us, the best way to reach us is through Facebook Messenger. Our shop gets very busy sometimes, and it can be very difficult to get us on the phone. I apologize, but um, through Facebook Messenger, we are incredibly responsive, and um, I respond almost 24 hours a day. And um, email and, and text is also good, but Facebook Messenger is the best way to get in touch with us if you have any questions. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly at antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!